reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 12. And if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, you can find this passage on page 160. Joshua chapter 12, verse 1. These are the kings of the land whom the Israelites had defeated and whose territory they took over east of the Jordan, from the Arnon Gorge to Mount Hermon, including all the eastern side of the Arabah. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, he ruled from Erewer on the rim of the Arnon Gorge, from the middle of the gorge to the Jabbok River, which is the border of the Ammonites. This included half of Gilead. He also ruled over the eastern Arabah, from the Sea of Kinnereth to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, to Beth Jeshemoth, and then southward below the slopes of Pisgah. In the territory of Og, king of Bashan, one of the last of the Rephites, who reigned in Ashtaroth and Edrei, he ruled over Mount Hermon, Salika, all of Bashan to the border of the people of Geshur, and Maacah, and half of Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the Israelites conquered them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to be their possession. These are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which rises to Seir, Their lands Joshua gave as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel according to their tribal divisions. The hill country, the western foothills, the Arabah, the mountain slopes, the desert, and the Negev. The lands of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, near Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Geter, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Makeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madden, one. The king of Hazor, one. The king of Shimron, Moran, one. The king of Akshaf, one. The king of Taanach, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kedesh, one. The king of Jachnium in Carmel, one. The king of Dor and Napheth, Dor, one. The king of Goyim and Gilgal, one. The king of Terza, one. Thirty-one kings in all. This is God's word. In any line of work, we'll always have easy days and hard days. <laughs> Guess what today is? Yeah. Well, you got to love it, right? Uh, here's why we do this. First of all, a disclaimer, I do not devise the preaching roster. 
Uh, the senior pastor does that. So, not my fault. But here's why we do this. And, and you know, you've got to love that passage, right? And you've got to love the fact that you are not the presider responsible for reading the scripture for that passage. Here's why we do this. As it happens, you know, God speaks through scripture. I mean, if you look at scripture, scripture tells us this is where scripture says about itself. This is how God speaks to us. This is where God speaks to us. You know, if we want to hear from God reliably, you know, we don't want to deny that sometimes we can pray and God will speak somehow discreetly, intuitively to us. But if we want to hear God reliably, the way the church has always heard God, then we go to scripture. The scripture is how God speaks. So now it poses a challenge for us because first of all, we must listen to what God said to somebody else at some other time. And then from what he said to somebody else at some other time, then we have to extrapolate what God is saying to us today. And it can be something of a challenge because, first of all, it was written, Joshua was originally written to someone else. And it was originally written at another time. So we have to figure out from what God said to them at their time, what God is saying to us in our time. So anytime we approach scripture, whether Old Testament or New, we're always asking two questions. What was the point for them? And then the second question is, what's the point for us? Now, if we come to passages like today, and this seems a little bit hard. Oh, by the way, there is a very important point in today's passage. But if we look at a passage like today, and it seems a little bit hard, we can at least be grateful that we're not Muslim. Because they have an additional disadvantage. The Quran, you know, is not supposed to be translated. So if you really want to understand the Quran, you're supposed to learn Arabic. We don't require you to learn Hebrew or Greek. We put it in English for you. So we have one step of an advantage. But we turn to this passage. Now, before we turn to the passage, let me you know, describe a scenario that we face that this passage will speak to. On a very pedestrian level, if you follow the NFL. And this is not just an illustration for males because we got a lot of guys here that don't follow football. And we have at least some females who follow football here more rigorously than most males. But if you follow the NFL, you will know that one of the biggest issues over last year and then transitioning into this year is what's going to happen with Peyton Manning and then what's going to happen with the Indianapolis Colts. You know, Peyton Manning, even if you're a Patriots fan, you've got to really concede. I mean, it's true, John, even if you don't like it. You've got to really concede that Peyton Manning is the best quarterback in the NFL. I mean, don't leave. But at least, at least authorities in sports nominated or voted Peyton Manning to be the most valuable football player from 2000 to 2009. And then the question was, you know, Peyton Manning last year was 35. You know, as he's getting into his mid-30s, the question is, what's going to happen to the Colts when Peyton Manning retires? Now, they've gone through this before. You know, who was the last great quarterback that the Colts had? Huh? Johnny Unitas in the 60s. You know, he really retired. He really stopped being effective about 67, 68. And then they had to go 30 years, 25, 28 years, into the 90s before they got a decent quarterback again. And they actually had to move from Baltimore to Indianapolis. 
you know, what do you do if you have a successful quarterback and a successful franchise and then he's going to retire or he's going to get too old to play? Now, that was a question that was facing the Indianapolis Colts and then Peyton Manning got hurt. So they've come up with a, the most brilliant solution all last year, right? Zero and 13, two and 15, they ended the season. So they came last, and so they got the first choice in the draft, and they chose a new quarterback. So is, how, what's going to happen with the new quarterback? And then Peyton Manning, the best football player in a decade, Peyton Manning got traded by his team. So, but it raises the whole question, you've got a successful franchise, but then you need a successor. Who's going to take over? Uh, there have been a lot of successful quarterbacks without successors. Roger Staubach, John Elway, Troy Aikman, Dan Marino, they lead their team into greatness and then they retire or they get hurt and what happens to the team after that? There have been very few franchises that actually had success followed by a successor. I can remember watching Joe Montana with the 49ers and thinking once they traded him, once he retired, this franchise is going to die. But then Steve Young came or Green Bay after Brett Favre, the transition to Aaron Rodgers. But very rarely do you have a success followed by a successor. And so one of the questions for the Patriots now in preseason is, this uh, Ryan Mallett hasn't been playing so well. And some people had hoped that he would be the successor two or three years down the line to Tom Brady. What's going to happen to the Patriots when Brady retires or leaves the game, gets hurt. Now, the same kind of question we face at a personal level. Some members of our congregation, are, you know, we are as a congregation, some of us are reaching the age where our parents are beginning, well, I don't know how to put this discreetly, our parents are beginning to get old, infirmed, and die. Now, I went through that stage a few years ago. I can remember when my mother went through, this, through that phase, when her, her father died. When the, you have a passing of the generations from one to the next. I can remember at my wedding when we had this, some of you know the traditional Chinese tea ceremony. I, and we, we used to serve the, the I don't, can't do tones and it's Cantonese besides, but the, you know, the Tai Ma would be there. We, we, we'd have to serve the older generation, Tai Ma or whatever. Then I can remember when Irene transitioned from being Tai to Tai Ma. And I'm thinking, whoa, I'm not ready for that. And then the next generation dies off, and then suddenly you're the, la you know, you're the successor. You're the leaders of this family now. It's a transition from success, and then you become a succession. Every presidential election, some people freak out. Because, oh no, you know... Uh, We've had a Republican say, and you're a devoted Democrat. We've had a Republican, are we going to be able to get a Democrat in there? Can we make this change? Or if you've, you know, devoted Democrat, uh-oh, maybe the Republicans are going to take hold. The whole issue of success followed by succession. You know, how can we make this succession work? Churches face the same thing. You may not, you know, if you read widely, you'd realize that the American church is reaching a stage now that it's not really had before. In the 70s, the boomers, the whole movement to suburban malls led a movement to suburban churches or to mega churches. You know, all, mega shopping malls, mega churches. 
Whatever happens in the culture tends to come over to the church. So we had, in the 70s was really when all the mega malls got started, and then the mega churches got started. And now these boomer pastors who started these mega churches, mostly the mega churches did not grow out of existing churches. They were new plants. And these mega churches with boomer pastors are starting, the pastors are starting to retire. What will happen to the churches? They've been a success, but where will they find successors? And you can see, you know, I was reading about a church in Charlotte, which back in the 80s was a mega church. And now they have a huge facility that they can't support because other mega churches have sprung up. When their pastor retired, other mega churches sprung up. And instead of revitalizing their own church, they didn't get that done. The people flocked to other churches, newer churches with newer pastors, younger pastors. You know, the whole issue of succession. Uh, maybe some of you have read, if you follow California, what goes on over there, the Crystal Cathedral was one of the first megachurches, this new generation of megachurches. In the 60s, they got going. Uh, Crystal Cathedral, last couple of, uh, two years ago, went into bankruptcy. And last year, the Crystal Cathedral had to sell its building. The Crystal Cathedral was bought up by the Roman Catholic Diocese to build a new cathedral, or to, to renovate into a new cathedral for themselves. It, the senior pastor retired, and they couldn't find a successor that was adequate to keep it going. The whole issue of success then leads a second generation question. Who's going to be the successor that can keep this thing going? Now, we're going to take a look at how that impacts us in a moment. But, but first, the, the point I want to start with is this was the issue that the book of Joshua is addressing. Think of the situation they were facing. They had never really existed as a people. Israel was not Israel. A clan... A clan, Abraham's clan, went into Egypt to escape a famine. 400 years later, there's a horde of them, massive horde. And they get thrown out of Egypt, and suddenly, for the first time in their lives, they are a nation, suddenly, for the first time. And Moses leads them. He leads them out of Egypt. He looks after them in the wilderness. And then they're about to embark on an invasion into their new land, and Moses dies. So here's a crucial issue. What's going to happen to them now without their leader? And that's what the whole book of Joshua is about. What's going to happen to Israel now that Moses is no longer there? And you see Joshua 1 begins on this note, chapter 1, verse 2. God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, Get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You see how often Moses comes up. Moses defined who Israel was. Israel was defined by the fact that Moses led them. And then Moses dies. What's going to happen to Israel as they launch this invasion without Moses to guide them. And God says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Be strong and courageous. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the issue that, that Joshua, one of the key issues that Joshua is facing. Who's going to look after Israel now? Who's going to lead and guide and empower? Who's going to be with Israel now that Moses has died? And that's the issue that we face again in Joshua 12. 
Now, Joshua 12 is halfway through the book. We're not going to finish the book this year. My understanding is we're coming back to the book next year. But in Joshua 12, half the action of the book has come over, has passed. And the next half will carry out next year. But the, the, the part of Joshua it has two parts. First, they invade the land, Joshua 1 to 12. They invade the land. Joshua 13 and following, then they distribute the land to various uh, stakeholders, various tribes, various clans. So Joshua 1 to 12, they've invaded the land. And the author stops here and he pauses to make a theological point. This is not a pointless litany of various kings and cities. The author's making a point, and his point is this. God has fulfilled his promise. He brought Israel a successor to lead them. Now, I want to show you this from the text. There has, as God has promised, he's provided a successor, and that successor has led his people. I want to show you this from the text, and let me justify what I'm about to do. We have a lot of, you know, math and science nerds in this church, right? The, pa- the prayer today proved that. I, I don't know that you're ever going to hear the Higgs boson particle ever part of a worship service, you know, a, a thanks and praise to God, except in a church like ours. Now, I, I didn't really do well in math. And, well, I did fine in math. I didn't do really well in science when I was in school. I was a humanities nerd. So for those of you who are humanities nerds, I'm going to show you something from the text. Because I want to show you from the text of Joshua 12 that there is a point here. Those who are engineering nerds or whatever, you can watch. But this is really to give equal time to the humanities folks. Take a look then at Joshua chapter 12. Joshua 12 is actually in, occurs in four parts. And there are what literary specialists call a chiasm. He makes four part, there's four parts to it, and each part has two subpoint, or, or two points. And it goes in this order, A, B, B, A. Sure, go ahead. So, Chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, makes the same point, or a parallel point, to chapter 12, 9 to 24. And then chapter 12, verse 6, makes a parallel point to chapter 12, verse 7 and 8. And often in a chiasm, it's that center section that matters so much. It's 12, 6 and 12, 7 to 8. So keep going. Then what we see in 12, chapter 12, verses 1 to 5, there's two kings are defeated. And then in chapter 12, verses 9 to 24, there's 31 kings that are defeated. Those are, the, those are the boundaries, the bookends. Two kings are defeated, 31 kings are defeated. And Gerald went through that entire list. This city, one king. Or this king, one. This king, one. One after another after another. The author is clearly highlighting only two kings up in 12, 1 to 5. But now one king after another after another. 31 kings. Why does he make the point? What matters here is the two, the B and the B prime. So B, 12.6, tells us two kings were defeated by Moses. And then B prime tells us it was Joshua, 12.7.8, who defeats the 31 kings. So let me read that to you. Just, we'll focus on the B and the B prime here, 12.6 and 12.7.8. 12.6. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the Israelites conquered them. Conquered who? Conquered two kings. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave the land to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to be their position. So Moses and the Israelites conquered two kings. And Moses distributes that land to two and a half tribes. And then in 12, 7, and 8, we have this. 
These are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal God in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir. Their lands Joshua gave as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel according to their tribal divisions. And he goes through a list of 31 nations. So you see, the point is, Moses conquered two and gave land to two and a half tribes. Joshua conquered 31 kings and gave land to nine and a half tribes. Who's greater? And then if we break the B down further, it breaks down into four more points. Synonymous parallelism in this point. Notice verse 6a is parallel to verse 7a. There you go. Verse 6a is parallel to verse 7a. Alpha and alpha prime. And I thought this was for nerds. And verse uh, 6b is parallel to verse 7b. Beta and beta prime. And here's what's going on there. Notice in 6a. What happens in 6a? Moses and Israel conquered two cities. And then 7a... Joshua and Israel, back up a little bit, right? Oh, oh, my fault then. I didn't animate this. Never mind. Uh, verse, look at Alpha. Verse 6a, Moses and Israel conquer. A prime. Verse 7a, Joshua and Israel conquer. 31 people. And then in beta, 6b, Moses distributes the land. And then in, in uh, beta prime, Joshua distributes the land. Now, if I've lost you, come back here for the moment. Do you see what the author is doing? Is he's giving you two nations and tribes, 31 nations and tribes. And in the middle, he's saying, those two, Moses did. These 31, Joshua did. And Moses and Joshua's ministry was entirely parallel. They conquered and they distributed the land. Moses conquered and distributed the land. Joshua conquered and distributed the land. So what's the point? The point here is that Moses did it for, he conquered two kings and gave two and a half tribes, two and a half clans, the land. Joshua conquered 31 kings and gave nine and a half tribes and clans their land. What's the point of the story, the point of this chapter, and why so much detail is just to constantly pound it home? When Joshua 1 began, Israel was living in fear. They'd been rescued from Egypt, brought into the wilderness. Egypt was slavery, the wilderness, they had no food and drink. And Moses looked after them. He cared for them, he provided for them. God spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to the people. God didn't speak to the people, the people didn't speak to God. God spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to the people, the people spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to God. Moses saved their lives. He brought them out of slavery. He saved their lives. He got them food and drink in the wilderness. He saved their lives. When God was going to destroy them because of their sin, Moses said, no, destroy me instead. Their lives, in all three ways, were saved by Moses. Now they're about to invade a country that doesn't want to be invaded. And they're going to face constant war. Constant attack. And their lives are going to be threatened. And the question they ask is this. God, who's going to look after us now that Moses has died? And God said in Joshua 1, trust me, Joshua will look after you. And now what he's saying in Joshua 12 is this. You see, I told you the truth. Joshua looked after you. In fact, Joshua did more 
in war than Moses. Joshua gave you more land than Moses. He conquered more cities than Moses. I looked after you through Moses. I looked after you through Joshua. There's, so Joshua 12 really is making two points. The first point it's making is about Joshua. That Joshua did more for them in this one respect than did Moses. Joshua was a great and humble and leader. But he's making a more important point. He's making a point about, Joshua's making a point about God. That God was with them through Moses. Now God is with them through Joshua. There is a point to this chapter. That God has been with his people through their leaders. Now, anything we read from the Old Testament, we then have to read through the light of the New Testament. And who in the Bible do you suppose, if you thought about it for a moment, who in the Bible was in a more precarious situation than Israel was after Moses died? What people at what time faced a more dangerous situation than Israel after Moses died? Think about the the disciples as Jesus is going to the cross. And he meets with his disciples in the upper room. And now Jesus knows what's going to happen. The disciples haven't figured it out yet. But Jesus knows he's going to die. And so what does he say to the disciples? He sees the parallel and he says something similar to them. It's a whole issue of success and successors again. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 16... It's on page 765 in your pew Bible. Jesus says to his disciples this. Now I am going to the one who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things, because I've told you I'm going, your hearts are filled with grief. But I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. And then Jesus tells them of two benefits that they gain from his departure as he's crucified, and as he's resurrected. He tells them two things that they gain, why it's better for them. First, unless I go away, the counselor will not come, the paraclete will not come, the advocate will not come, the Holy Spirit won't come. Unless I go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, the Holy Spirit will do two things. The first thing he will do is to empower their evangelism. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and in regard to righteousness with regard to judgment. The first thing the Holy Spirit will do is convict people of sin. As the gospel is preached, the Spirit will empower the preaching. The Spirit will empower the effects of the gospel. And people will come to a realization of their own guilt and sin. And the second thing the Holy Spirit will do, John 16, 12 to 15, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, but you can't bear it now. But when he, when the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak what he hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. As Jesus comforts his disciples in the face of his impending death, He tells them the situation is parallel to Moses and Joshua. The situation, Jesus will die and go away, resurrected, ascended, exalted. They won't see him anymore. But this is not a loss. This is a gain because Jesus will send his spirit and the spirit will do two things. The spirit will empower their evangelism. And the spirit will 
guide and teach the church itself. The Spirit will empower their ministry outside the church. The Spirit will empower their ministry inside the church. Jesus says their situation is similar to Moses and Joshua. Jesus is followed by the Spirit. Uh, To illustrate, there is a church planting network throughout America, plants new churches. They call themselves the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. Why do they call themselves Acts 29? How many chapters in the book of Acts? 28. What they're saying, what they're claiming is now that the Spirit is working through us the same way as he worked through those early disciples. They're claiming to be a fulfillment of that initial promise from Jesus. Now, how does, what does this affect our lives? I think really this is a little bit hard for us to connect with or care about. Honestly, I think it is. Because we're not dependent on any one leader. Think of this. What will happen to Apple after the death of Steve Jobs? That was a pressing issue for Apple. Maybe still a pressing issue. I don't know how you feel about it. Uh, Think back to the history of the United States. What will happen after the death of George Washington? Or think back to the mission agency that I used to be part of, China Inland Mission. What will happen to the China Inland Mission after Hudson Taylor, the founder, dies? Or later on in its history. What will happen to the China Inland Mission when it's kicked out of China? There is no Inland Mission. What are you going to do? What happens to the organization? Now, for us, we are surrounded, most of us are part of stable organizations. Our church has gone through a series of succession. Our country goes through endless successions. Most of our companies are not start- or startups. They're stable institutions. And it's really hard for us to connect with this, I think, unless we're facing instability in our lives, in our institutions. But there are at least three or four ways this can apply. On a very pedestrian level, it applies to the whole issue of human succession. You know the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, right? It started, obviously, with Billy Graham. Now, if you follow Billy Graham at all, you know that Billy Graham's not in good health. He just went to the hospital recently. And so they've passed on the organization to, the leadership of the organization has now fallen to Franklin Graham. I went to Oral Roberts University, and Oral Roberts used to say, a success without a successor is a failure. So he passed his organization on to his son, uh, Richard Roberts, and then the whole thing imploded. Uh, from a human perspective, while we, when we look at succession, Moses had children, you know. They're not, this is not the book about Moses' children. This is a book about Joshua. It's an interesting phenomenon that in Scripture, succession came from the call of God. It didn't come from, the na- from birth, birthright. As we think about succession today, ministry succession, what we look for is the divine call, not human parentage. Or another direction to head with this text. As we think about the succession from Jesus to the Spirit, it warns us, don't put our reliance in human beings either human leaders or celebrity pastors, megachurch pastors or pastors who write all these books and celebrities. When one messes up, there's all sorts of trouble to follow. But, but the basic point is this. God's mode of succession 
is not from Jesus to the pastor of a mega church or any church, not from Jesus to some inspiring author. The, the succession that Jesus endorses is from him to the Holy Spirit. Our confidence should not be in human leaders, but in the Spirit himself. There's something else you can draw from this passage and the whole issue of succession. Jesus, as Moses passed on to Joshua, Jesus passed on to the Spirit. What does that say to us? Jesus gave his Spirit to the church. You know, it'd be easy for us to sit here and think, well, if Jesus were here to guide us, if Jesus were here to teach us, if Jesus were here to help direct our evangelism and our ministry, then things would be so different. But Jesus is here, or his spirit is here. He has given us his spirit collectively. Now, EML Core is meeting together to try and figure out, you know, what is God calling us to do? As a congregation, the BOE meets together to say, what is God calling us to do as a church? And we're going to have a survey a little bit about that, to touch on that a little bit, just a little bit today. What is God calling us to do? This is the question that we face as a community. Because we are not looking back to Jesus' time as the halcyon days of our youth. We're looking to the present, the spirit who is among us to guide us and direct us. And it's not just corporate, but it's also the question for us individually. What is Jesus calling you to do? If you looked at your life and at the opportunities around you, and you were to ask the question, what is Jesus calling me to do? This is a question you should ask. Over the next decade of your life, how is it that you want to serve the kingdom of God? Because Jesus has passed his spirit, his successor. His successor is in our church and we work corporately. But more than that, the spirit is in each of us individually and we work individually. What, is, what task has Jesus passed on through the spirit? What task has he passed on to you? This is a question that each of us should ask, that each of us should be able to answer. Because there has been a succession here. The succession goes from Jesus to the Spirit. And the Spirit's in the church and the Spirit is in us. So the succession goes to you and me. Jesus is not here. But we are. And he's given us his Spirit to call us collectively and to call us individually into ministry. The question that, that we will have to answer is the same question that Joshua 12 seeks to answer. God told Moses, I will give you a successor and Israel will prosper. Jesus told his disciples, I will give you a successor and his church will prosper. The question that we face corporately, the question we face individually, is the same question as Joshua 12. Can we say with Joshua in Joshua 12, God has given us a successor and his work goes on. It's up to us collectively, and it's up to us individually. Let's pray together. Father, by your grace, at the end of our lives, may we testify the way Joshua 12 did, that you have given a successor, and that your work has gone on through that succession. 
We ask for your grace, for your spirit to be work at us collectively, for the spirit to be at work in us individually. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.